HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese, where cheesemakers have been making award-winning cheese for generations. Go to wisconsincheese.com to order directly from Wisconsin Dairies to your home. This week on Meet and 3, we're revisiting Kitchen Joys to bring a bit of levity to life during lockdown. The major lesson is that I'm learning <laughs> to just enjoy anything that I can taste and to taste it slowly and to just enjoy it. Reach for those jars of jam, you know, maybe bourbon, that apricot jam, and maybe some lemon juice. Shake it vigorously and strain it uh, into a cocktail glass. It'll be delightful. It's like, no, what are you cooking? What do you like to cook? And naturally, that's going to be a little bit like a niche because you are not going to be an expert at everything. Your shtick could be that you are not an expert at everything, but you want to learn. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome writer and Paris Authority, David Leibovitz. In this episode, we'll talk to David about understanding French culture, his latest book, Drinking French, and we'll hear David's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As lockdowns ease around the world, we send our best wishes to those recovering their health and restarting their businesses, especially in the hospitality industry. We extend our gratitude to those health and key workers who have saved lives and kept us safe. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. When Julia fell in love with France, she was particularly focused on the food. Beyond learning how to cook it properly, she was determined to understand the French cultural obsession with it. That's not to say the French are terribly obsessive about food, but culturally the French feel very strongly about respecting food principles, which include health, lore, tradition. And as a result of her time in France, Julia was a strong proponent of wine appreciation. Nevertheless, she enjoyed a good cocktail. 
In fact, having a cocktail was a regular part of Julia's evening routine, both in France and when she returned to the States. However, cocktails were left up to her husband, Paul, who famously had his own repertoire, including the beloved reverse martini. Yes, today, we're jetting back to France, as we did in conversation with Melissa Clark in episode 88, but instead of the food, we're focusing on the drinks. Joining us to share his insights is one of the best-known Paris food bloggers, David Leibovitz. DavidLeibovitz.com was awarded Blog of the Decade by Savour in 2019 and has been on the go long enough to predate the term blog. Since he moved to Paris, David is best known as a writer, but he was also a pastry chef at Chez Panisse for more than a decade. Some of his most popular cookbooks include My Paris Kitchen, The Perfect Scoop, Ready for Dessert, and The Great Book of Chocolate, as well as two memoirs, The Sweet Life in Paris and La Apart, about his Paris apartment renovation. There are few Americans more trusted for their insider knowledge of Paris than David. He joins us today for a deep dive into the nuances and delightful tastes from his latest book, Drinking French, the iconic cocktails, aperitifs, and cafe traditions of France, with 160 recipes covering everything from non-alcoholic treats to liqueurs and cocktails, as well as snacks. Welcome to the podcast, David. (laughs) Hi, Todd. How's it going? (laughs) It's going. It's going. How are you doing in Paris? I'm good. I'm glad I'm your your favorite Paris inside-er. Yes. (laughs) I'm used to speaking two two languages all the time, and sometimes I forget things and I I make gaffes too. So I'm always appreciative when other people (laughs) have to do do some gymnastics, uh, grammatical gymnastics as well. (laughs) I'm your man. It's my own words too that I'm stumbling over. (laughs) That's okay. That's what writers do. We stumble over our own words yes. <laughs> and sometimes die by them. And, you know, so, but whatever. Um, in this case, though, um, I celebrate France with my words and through the drinks. So. <laughs> and so how, how share with us, because um, while we've covered French topics and French cooking, we haven't actually spoken to anyone resident in France during the pandemic. So what's the experience like and are things easing or what's the evolution feel like right now? Um, well, today actually is the last day. Um, we came out of lockdown about three weeks ago. Um, we had an in- enforced lockdown and we had to to leave the house. You had to carry like an attestation or a form that you filled out saying why you were going out and you had to have a good reason. Um, being friends, of course, a lot of people just went out um, or sort of, you know, did whatever. But basically, like you were supposed to go out only to do grocery food shopping, go to the bakery or go to the pharmacy or something essential. Um, but as of tomorrow, the cafes and restaurants are going to be allowed to open, but only ones that have terraces um, and only they're going to be required to keep a distance. In France, the social distance is three feet rather than the six feet of the U.S., um, which a lot of people still have trouble with here. Um, three feet is... It's not that hard, but people like to stand very close to each other. So it'll be interesting to see how that works. Yes, I've learned here in London that two meters means something very different to everybody. Yes, um, personal space is very different. Um, Well, at first it was interesting when they started, you know, I watch American news and people were standing really close to me. And I was like, can you step back? And these are like friends of mine. And they're like, why? Like six, you know, two meters. They're like, no, just one. And so um, I asked my pharmacist about that. And he goes, well, one meter, two meter is like a kilometer is better. 
(laughs) (laughs) I like his thinking. Well, that's a good icebreaker. You could be like, could you just step back a kilometer? Yeah, please. (laughs) So that'll be interesting to see, you know, because the cafe culture, you know, which I wrote about was so important in France or is so important in France. Um, But the last few weeks, there's been something popping up called the apéro. Apéro is the aperitif hour, but apéro is people gathering on the streets to have drinks with their friends. So they've all been having these little makeshift parties and picnics, um, much to some of the government's consternation, shall we we say. Um, So there have been a lot of parties. So everybody's ready for the cafes to open. Well, and that was one of my questions for you is just describe, particularly because the book really takes us through the importance of cafe and bar and wine bar culture, particularly in Paris, but all throughout France. And so can you tell us a little bit more about how you saw Parisians adapting to this, you know, quite a strict lockdown compared to England in the, in the U.S. And how did that, were they adapting their drinking habits with cafe culture on hold or were they just stuck at home with their, whoever they lived with? Well, you know, it's hard to say because we were all stuck at home. So I I didn't see a lot of people. But in my neighborhood, people started doing the applause at 8 p.m. for the healthcare workers. And they would stand in their windows. um, And people saw their neighbors. Like in France, you don't, in Paris, basically, you don't see your neighbors very often. And you don't know them. So we all kind of got to know each other from standing in our windows and then eventually, you know, we'd all stand there with a glass of wine. Then someone started playing music, and it turned into some, it turned into a more raucous party. Um, but that was, you know, everyone was just drinking wine. Eventually, people started heading out to the street to celebrate with everybody else. Um, I stayed in because I'm an American and I follow rules. Um, <laughs> because Which is such a DNA. funny contradiction because France is right. This great dichotomy between an extremely rule-based, you do things, cesa this way, and you know all the bureaucracy and the forms, but this natural belief that it doesn't apply to you and you can do what you want. Yes. Right? And, and so yeah. have you been feeling that tension like daily in France? Yes. And I've had a lot of discussions about with people about it. Um, a, bit, a common complaint has been, we don't like the government treating us like children. And my response is, well, there's actually a global pandemic and the idea is to save lives. It's a public health thing. And, you know, the other concept in France that's very important is solidarity, solidarity or solidarity. Um, you know, that was the whole thing. Like we must come together um, to fight the power or to fight the, the virus or whatever. Um, so that gets manipulated to whatever, you know, this, you know, whatever people want it to be. But I kept saying, you know, well, the idea is we need to get rid of this. You know, we don't want to infect other people. And they're like, well, that's not going to happen. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, and, you know, some neighbors told me, well, the virus is already over. This is like a month ago. Or another one told me, he said he wanted everyone to get the virus and that way it would go away. And I said, you do realize that zero scientists agree with that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like saying, let's everyone get HIV so it goes away. You know, it's just, um, I don't know if, I'm not a doctor, but I don't know if that's how it works. 
Well, that's actually an interesting analogy that I was just going to say that I think happened here in London, too, is the more effective the lockdown, the more the disease didn't seem dangerous, right? So as the, like the more you were contained, the fewer people getting sick, and particularly the less you were seeing that, the more it felt like, well, this is extreme and this is unnecessary, or maybe this isn't real. And unless particularly you had a close relation or friend who was reporting to you, as I did, who was a health worker, who was, you know, one of my best friends is an ER doctor in the States. And he would, you know, having Zoom calls where he was telling us what he's seeing in the ER. Do you, do you think that was kind of it in Paris? They, they were actually so yes. effective that um, it I think people weren't like, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know anybody that had COVID here. Um, so it's very interesting, um, you know, whereas I know people in America that had it and people were talking about it. And my partner, who's French, he said, well, you need to stop watching the American news because that's not what's happening here. Which to some degree is correct. You know, it's a different uh, different situation. That is an accurate statement of fact, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> accurate. I mean, he's very open-minded. He's not like, you know, it's America. Um, but he was correct in some ways. Um, so... You know, however, I'm also in the food business and I had to explain to people, I said, well, my job is not to, was not to make people sick. So I had to practice good hygiene as someone who prepared food for other people to eat. And once again, going back to the AIDS era, there was this whole thing like, you know, somebody in the kitchen cuts a piece of chicken with a knife, raw chicken, and then they cut your cucumber, put it on your salad. If you have, if you had HIV or have it, that's very, it was very dangerous in those days. You know, you could die from you know, getting salmonella. So, you know, the result, you had to be very, very careful. Yeah, no, and I think that was the build of HIV was slower, or at least seemed slower in terms of public consciousness. But then there was more public evidence, particularly in America, of people dying horrible deaths much more slowly from it. And it, I think, in the, because I, I came of age during the height of the AIDS crisis, I was in my late teens, and it was sex could kill you. And that that was a very unique period, but it was a much slower thing. So it made it more threatening, I think, maybe than COVID, which has come. It's quick. If you got it, you were gone. And or, well, well you know, I was living it's, in it's San Francisco. So, I, you know, all of a sudden this thing happened and, you know, everybody started dying. And it was like, oh, my God. Um and COVID is not as, you know, the, the deaths were not as dramatic. No, it's think, not as you know, deadly, I, actually, right. Yeah, I don't want to, you know, de, I don't want to um, de-emphasize the impact of COVID. But in those, you know, HIV was a death sentence. And, you know, it was just a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. Um, that said, you know, all these people that don't want to wear masks, I'm, I'm like, well, I remember when nobody wanted to wear a condom in San Francisco, and I look at, you know, I look at these people and I go, and everybody died. So is, you know, is it worth dying for? Is it worth making other people sick for? That's something, you know, as, as members of society, we have to ask ourselves. you know, is my right to do what I want to do greater than your right, you know, is it your health or whatever? So there's a lot of issues going on, especially now, because, um, and, you know, HIV, everyone just hunk, people, you know, it was a. It was like this. You know, big weight had dropped over America and over the world, and I, I still can't forget it. I think about it a lot now, 
And now it seems, you know, when they did a film about it, I think it was called, I think it was The Normal Heart, and they showed it at a theater in San Francisco. And apparently a lot of the young people thought it was fiction. The young gay people, they didn't, because the film was very, you know, real. And they thought it was fiction. They didn't, you know, they were like, that really happened? It was like, yeah, it happened like, you know, 15 years ago or something, you know, something. So, you know, we're a society that we move quickly. We have social media, you know, that's our news. That's our reality now. And a lot of stuff, you know, in some ways, social media is great for disseminating information, um, for changing, you know, for making, you know, certain changes. Um, They say that gay marriage became legal because young people didn't have it in their head that it was bad. They just, they were getting all their info from social media. So they were like, Sure. Okay. Next. You know, swipe left. Okay. Next. Yeah. <laughs> so all of these heavy topics could certainly lead folks to start drinking. So what were you now? Were you drinking more, or less, differently during the lockdown? Was it just wine, or were you sticking to your inspiration to get away from wine for your latest book? Well, one thing is, that, you know, it took me a couple two years to write the book, and I had this huge collection of alcohol. And when the book was done, you know, it came out right at the same time the COVID crisis hit. And I'm looking at this liquor shelf with 150 bottles of liquor on it going, what am I going to do with all these bottles? Like, you know, it's a lot, it was a lot of liquor. I mean, some of them were like these obscure French things. Some of them were just cheap whiskey, um, whatever. So I decided, well, I'm going to start doing an Instagram, like daily Apero hour live. And I'm not like a video person, um, but we, you know, we were drinking. We, you know, we're wine drinkers mostly at home. We have cocktails every once in a while. Um, I love cocktails, but you know, on a, my partner's, he's a little French person, so he has a cocktail and he doesn't handle it as well. As I, <laughs> That's the evening, shall we say? Right? <laughs> yeah, he weighs about half of what I weigh, so it's very cute. But I under, you know, he's not used to it. It's not cultural to that to French people. Um, but anyhow, um, so we sort of started transitioning to drinking the cocktails. I'd make a drink and then I would drink it afterwards. Um, and that was really fun, actually, because it gave me a purpose, gave me something to do. Um, I did it regularly. I still do um, at 6 p.m. every night Paris time to do an apéro hour. Um, and it just seemed that's the purpose of an apéro is to share a drink with people. So it didn't really matter what we were drinking, but... You know, often it was a cocktail because I'm a baker and I used to do baking demos and, you know, you have to make a cake and it takes an hour or two and you got to sit there and wait for it to bake. Whereas a drink, you just put everything in a glass, shake it up and pour it. So um, I found it really therapeutic for me to have a cocktail every night. Well, I'm curious, too, you, you've kind of done this progression from baker, dessert person, Paris authority, and... What I'm assuming that your actual fascination that you went to this book about was more about the culture of drinking than that you're obsessed with cocktails? Or what was it that got you to this place of wanting to write about this as your next book? Um, absolutely. Well, I signed a two-book deal when I wrote my book La Pâte, which was about buying an apartment um, where everything went wrong. And the other book that was sold with that was a book on French drinks, and I decided I should do the memoir first because it was fresher in my mind. And then I was glad because after reliving that whole um, sort of traumatic, you know, comedy of errors, trauma, I should have to say, um, it was like, oh, drinks. 
Now, this is something nice to explore. Um, and it's a great, as you mentioned, um, you really sort of hit the nail on the head there saying it's about French culture of drinking. And, you know, a lot of people talk about French cuisine. They talk about that, you know, the dishes, the cooking, the traditions, the regions. Um, but the drinks have the same culture, the same traditions, the same meaning, even more so because French people are always drinking something like drinks are really important to them, not just what's in the glass, but the cafes, the bistros, um, the troquets, which are sort of dive bars in the countryside, um, and also the making of all these things. The big challenge was every single bottle, you know, like a cognac has this huge tradition in France, um, you know, vermouth, French vermouth. Um, Julia Child loved French vermouth, you mentioned that. You know, it, it tells you a lot about the culture, the country, the terroir, which is the climate, um, what grow, you know, the grapes, the French are really into agriculture. So all of these bottles are, you know, expressions of their, of everything. You know, I could, I could talk for an hour, you know, Liz, you know there were to- health tonics and so forth. It was just, you know, it was such a rich subject. I just dove into it and loved it. Well, yes. And, and the, the, the proof is in the pudding because it's a fascinating book beyond it having wonderful recipes, the, the stories and the, the depth of uh, research that you've done, and then the, the um, entertaining cultural connections. And as someone who's also done property work in France. It, I, and oh, totally, you have? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So well, somebody, um, that, that's a whole other, other subject beyond our scope. But um I'm excited. We're going to take a break and we'll be back with David Leibovitz to talk more about his latest book, Drinking French. Stay with us. Despite challenging circumstances, dairy farmers are working hard to make sure communities across the country have fresh, nutritious food to keep us healthy during these uncertain times. It's more important than ever to eat, enjoy, and support real dairy. Want to help? Go to wisconsincheese.com where you can order award-winning Wisconsin cheese directly from cheesemakers to keep our family dairy farms in business for generations to come. Welcome back. We're talking to acclaimed food writer David Leibovitz, about his newest book, Drinking French, the iconic cocktails, aperitifs, and cafe traditions of France. So one thing that I was struck by in this very comprehensive and entertaining and engrossing new book is that, can you help us kind of discern which drinks you still feel are perennially in fashion in France from those that are suddenly au courant or having a moment? Well, wine, of course, is always in fashion. I mean, there's always wine wherever you go. Um, I happen to live in a neighborhood that's very hip. Um, so there's a lot of young people here, and they drink a lot of beer. Um, you know, people outside of France don't necessarily associate associate fr- France with beer. Um, but, you know, beer has a very old tradition in France. Um, and, the, the, you know, there's new generations of brewers that are you know, young people that are doing craft beers that are really incredible and amazing and wonderful. Um, so those are some of the drinks that are perennially in fashion, you know, beer and wine. Uh, but there's usually, since I moved to France, there's always like a cocktail 
Um, and I, I'm using little imaginary quotes with my fingers when I say that. That has become like the cocktail of the moment. Yeah, it used to be the mojito. Um, and then it became um, the spritz. And, you know, next it might be the gin and tonic. So we're going to see. Uh, but people were doing and you know, spritz being everywhere. An, an Aperol spit, spritz. Yes. And, you know, usually those, you know, I, usually those trends are promoted by a lot of advertising from multinational companies like, you know, Mojitos, you know, Bacardi Rum. Um, you know, no, no, no offense against Bacardi Rum, but they were pushing this drink and people bought it. People started drinking Mojitos. And, you know, you couldn't go to a cafe in Paris without seeing Mojitos, Mojitos. And then it became the Spritz, you know, which was accompanied by a very effective marketing campaign. Um, I know the Spritz became controversial the last few years. I like the Spritz, um, so I'm okay with it. <laughs> Why would, I don't I pref- know that. Why was it controversial? I was aware that it was back in fashion. And, and presumably one thing about having a cafe culture is it means that alcohol companies can incentivize uh, bar- yes. barmen and women to push certain drinks. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> well, so what was the controversy? There was a New York Times article about a year or two ago about um, the spritz and saying it wasn't a good drink. Um, and it immediately forced people to take sides and you know, became a big controversy, so to speak. Um, and I talked to someone who works for the company that makes Aperol, and at first they were very upset. Um, then they go, well, actually, more people are drinking them now because out of spite. So, so it was very <laughs> interesting, you know, that the, the two sides that that article sort of, you know, some people were like, yeah, it's a bad drink. And some people were like, I'm drinking more. So, um, you know, controversy can sometimes be good, I guess, you know. But I fall on this. I like the spritz. I do prefer it with a stronger bitter. I, you know, Aperol's not my bitter of choice, shall we say. But um, Well, I always think it's like you're sort of an Aperol or a Campari person. And Campari is more bitter and Aperol is sweeter. That's how I've always thought about it. Yes. Um, and I also like, I, I like French bitters better than Italian, than Campari. Um, and no offense to Campari, it's iconic and it's has its place, but it's very strong to me. So I like, I use Dolan bitters, which is made in the French Alps. Because I want to be French. I want to support the French. And Dolan, it's D-O-L-I-N. Yes. Which you write, which, and which I visited has its own, them. Yeah, it has its own chapter in your book, Do Tell. Yeah, well, I gave it a couple pages. I wanted, one of the things a lot of people, especially even myself included, you would come to France or go to a cafe and like, what, is, what are those bottles behind the bar? What is that pecan thing? What is Dubonnet? Um, and I sort of wanted to explain them what they were. But you know, once again, as I got into them deeper, I was like, oh, these have a story. It's not just, it's a orange-based liquor with quinine. And you know, it became something much more interesting. So Dolan is a French vermouth that is made in Chambéry. It's been, which Chambéry, that region of France, used to be part of... Uh, the Duchy of Italy or the Savoy. Um, I think it was sort of a between, I'm, I'm not a historian, I'm not a geographer, um, I'm not a historian, but that was a part, that was not part of France at that time. And they started making vermouth there and it became, vermouth de Chambéry became a big thing. And Dolan vermouth is said to be the last vermouth de Chambéry. At one time there were seven and now there's just Dolan according to Dolan. 
Well, can we stick on vermouth? Because I've always, I've never bothered before your book to really try to understand what it is. And, and whether I always thought it's like, it's completely its own thing, which it's not exactly. But I also have known, because we actually get questions at the foundation about Julia's love of Noe Pratt, which is you have to practice saying. So you also did some a deep dive into the history or story of Noe Pratt. And so I wanted you, because that was a Julia favorite and kind of her staple vermouth for the reverse martini, which is more vermouth than uh, gin. Can you tell us a little bit about both what vermouth is and the Noe Pratt story? Well, we probably all, like I remember my parents always had a bottle of Noe Pratt in their liquor cabinet. It was very old and it was brought out for cooking, you know. But um, Noe Pratt was considered the first French vermouth. And it has a very interesting story um, and it's made um, in the south of France. It's made in a town called Marseillon. Not Marseille, but Marseillon. And there's a big etang in front of it, but it's right off the Mediterranean. And in the old days, the wine used to be shipped from Spain because it's very close to Spain. Used just to be say, shipped uh, in... David, you just, uh, an etang, right, is a marsh? Uh, it's sort of a marsh, like a pond, I think. I think it's, it translates more to pond. Okay. Um, so there's a big pond there. <laughs> I should just not not use the French words at all. No, use the you just have to give the translation, especially. Okay. A tongue doesn't come up in, you know, usual yes, conversation that often. It's sort of a weird word. Um, but the boats used to ship the wine in barrels on the sea to Noilly Prat. And during that time the wine took on the eight the sort of the aged oak flavor, sort of oxidized. And it took on the salt from the air. So Noily Pratt still today keeps the vermouth. They make vermouth and they keep it outside in these barrels. And there's about a thousand barrels out in the sun where they sit for a year while the vermouth ages. Um, and the short answer to how vermouth is made, it's basically an aromatized or fortified wine. Um, it's wine based. You start with wine and you add flavorings to it. The word vermouth comes from the German word vermut, which means wormwood, um, which is a herb that gives, which lends bitterness to, to whatever it's infused in. So usually vermouth has wormwood, but it can have oranges, it can have walnut husks, it can have orange peel, it can have cocoa beans, it can have cinnamon, saffron. Um, and Neuilly Pratt, um, they still make you know, they're removed that, that old way by keeping the barrels out in the sun for a year, which is pretty fascinating. And I think in the, in the book, if I recall, there's all these different sort of iterations of it. And I think one of the reasons that it's used for cooking is the traditional one that Americans might be, is, is quite a dry one. It's not a sweet vermouth like um, martini. Right, and that's one of the things that's distinct. Well, Noily Pratt was always... Um, Noily Pratt used to make a special vermouth... Um, well, let me back up a bit. Europeans traditionally drink vermouth on the rocks with a twist. They don't usually mix it with cocktails because most Europeans are not... Um, you know, Europe's not a cocktail culture like America is, you know. Italy does have their Negronis, you know, France has certain cocktails it's associated with, but it's not as strong as like, let's say America or the UK. Um, so 
Noily Pratt was making, they decided to change the formula in, I think it was 2009, that they sent to America. They used to, um, they decided to, that Americans were going to get the European version and they stopped producing the one that was clearer that people put in their martinis. And all of a sudden they, there was a sort of slightly golden colored vermouth that had a lot of flavor and people didn't like it. So um, Noily Pratt backpedaled and they came out with a extra dry just for the American market. You can't get it in France for martinis. Um, and during that time, a lot of people found Dolan vermouth. They're like, oh, here's this French dry vermouth that's crystal clear. It makes a really good martini. So I think they lost some traction there. Um, I don't know sales figures and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, that was a very interesting, you know, period, I think, for Noily Pratt. They learned something. Uh, no, well, but, that actually know. makes the inquiries that we've gotten clearer because I, we couldn't quite understand what people were asking us. But I think that must have been it, that it was a reaction to a chain formula by maybe people who didn't know that or were looking for the old thing. And But we were like, we're, we're not in the Noy Pratt business at the foundation. So yeah, I don't. Oh, yeah. Can't really do well, it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if Noily Pratt. I think they do send both the extra dry and the original dry. And I explained all this in the book so people can, you can refer people to my book. Um, because some people do like the original dry, which is the European formula. They like, it's like a, you know, dirty martini, shall we say. A lot of people like that, sort of a lot of botanicals going on in their vermouth, where some people want that crystal clear martini, and that's fine. Um, you know, but... French vermouth is always dry vermouth. That's what the French excel in. And even though you can get red vermouth in France, usually that's something more um, more the domain of the Italians, shall we say. Or Spanish. Spanish. Spain has some wonderful vermouth as well. Yeah, it's kind of a rare example of where Americans actually in, in prefer something less sweet and Europeans are going more sweet, which is sort of counter to, to expectation. Well, there is that, but, you know, a lot of people often say Americans like everything sweet. I'm like, well, actually, we have this fondness for bitter. You know, you look at the Amaro, you know, the wave of Amaros now in America. Everyone's eating Amaro, you know, drinking Amaro. Um, but we also tend to like bitter things as well, like kale. Everyone was eating kale for years and years, you know, very bitter. And Euro Europeans are like, oh, no, that was, I remember that from the war. No, thank you, you know. So Americans, we have a love-hate relationship with sweet and bitter. True. So on that note, I wanted to ask you sort of stepping back big picture from the book. I feel like in my experiences in France, I, I see this kind of evolution as France has – I mean, it's not France that's globalizing. It's the world that's globalizing. But as globalization takes – has its effect on France and French culture. I was curious what you thought might be being lost and gained, hopefully, in France, in its drinking culture, which I think we were just kind of hinting at the margins of that subject with the vermouth conversation. Well, I think, you know, the globalization has really helped French drinking culture and helped drink companies. Um, a friend of mine, Brad Thomas Parsons, wrote a book on Amaro, and one of the Amaro makers said to him, we give Americans Amaro and you give us back recipes for using it. Um, because in Amaro, you know, in Italy, a lot of people would never think of making a cocktail with it. You know, it's not 
part of their DNA. It's more something behind the bar. And the same with America, like Suze, which is a French gentian liquor. And you mention the word to anyone in France, they're like, oh, my grandmother has a bottle in her cupboard. Like that's, that's all, it's 100% of the time, that's the response. Whereas in America, all these bartenders have adopted, adapt, or adopted it and adapted it and made all these wild cocktails. And now um, in Brooklyn, someone's producing a Gineppi liquor, um, you know, all influenced by France. All the, you know, somebody, you know, it's very, you know, and the American market has become really important because everyone's drinking all these French liquors now and it's great. Um, Lillet is a classic example. Like very few people in France have ever heard of Lillet. Um, it's very regional. It's something, if you're in Bordeaux, you can get it. But in Paris, you know, you ask for Lillet and they'll give you a glass of milk. Lillet. <laughs> <laughs> and that happened to me when I first moved here. I was like, they brought, the waiter brought out this little silver tray with a doily on it with a glass of milk. I'm sitting there in a cafe, you know, everyone's staring at me. Like, who's this guy, a 40-year-old guy drinking a glass of milk? So, <laughs> <laughs> Did you down it in one? I didn't because um, I said, I, I sort of explained and I said, oh, excuse me. And I didn't realize also in France you're not, you can't return things. So <laughs> yeah, I think you I, send yeah. it back, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah so. no, the mistake is always the customers, bien sûr. Yeah, well, it's gotten a little better, but my partner's very, you know, because he's 100% French, he's very good at um, getting action on things. <laughs> it is very much about the approach. And there, I mean, my partner is not French, but raised in France. And so she has a perfect Parisian accent, but she doesn't look the least bit French. And she speaks, she's also fluent in English and speaks with a perfect American accent. So if we're there and she is speaking to me, they make a certain assumption. But then I, the number of times I've watched the facial expression of shock when she changes to Parisian French, but what you also get is a completely different change in demeanor. Um, her brother, I've also seen this, he's very good with some French sommeliers who assume because he looks like a big garish tall American, but and it's it's a shocking cultural shift of attitude. No, but it's true. I have friends uh, who are French and they're bilingual, completely bilingual, um, you know, 100%. And they are, they're different people because you have to get into a different mindset when you speak French versus English. And also when you're talking in France, the dynamic between two people is very different. And I never, I never felt integrated here until maybe my 12th year, and I started just talking to people, just going at people and doing what my partner does. And most of the time it works out pretty well um, because the French, or I should probably say Parisians, have this reputation for being um, not friendly, but that's not true. You just have to talk to people. And then they're very friendly. They can be. I mean, you know, it's, I, I like, I like talking to New Yorkers because New Yorkers understand. Well, I uh, think know, that's the same thing. People think brusque. New Yorkers are not friendly. And they're not friendly in terms of maybe an American Southern way of like, how are y'all doing? They don't bother with that. And neither do Parisians. But if you get in trouble or need help in New York, everyone around you will, will help. It's, 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 a different of, it's a different definition of what, what nice is about. Well, I think it also changed after 9-11 um, there was a real, um, you know, New York changed and the people, everyone was like, 
you know, it was a collective event that everybody, collective grief. Um, and here it was very interesting. The first few weeks of the pandemic, people were really nice. Like you'd walk by people on the street, they'd walk by you or, you know, whatever. And they would say, bonjour, monsieur, you know, just hello to neighbors. And which is pretty profound, you know, people just... No, it's not a European thing to address strangers like it is. In yeah, I mean, I have neighbors who live in my building and they'll walk right by me. <laughs> and I've lived here eight years without even acknowledging me. And my partner's like, well, you have to just say hello. I'm like, well, shouldn't we just make eye contact and say, you know, this is like, you're standing, you know, <laughs> you're walking down the sidewalk and they come at you like you would just say yeah, hello. But they He's don't like, know no. you because you haven't had that conversation. So they don't know you, which is a different yeah. thing. So before we run out of time, I did want you to be able to share with us um, some, uh, you've shared some of the great stories and research that you've done that's gone into the book, but I also, it has so many wonderful, it's chock full of great recipes, both exotic and practical and easy to do and more complex. But I, I was thinking about, you know, our personal great longing of not being able to go to France, even though I can drive down and see it across the channel um <laughs> okay what um what i'll wave what are a, cu a couple examples of recipes that you think will at least maybe evoke paris in summertime if you can't get there well i love the americano um it's one of my favorite you know most of the time in france at a cafe people don't drink a, a, a full-on cocktail you go to a cocktail bar for that um an americano is perfect because it's vermouth and bitters with some sparkling water, so you can sip it. You're not going to get hammered. It's very refreshing. Um, you're going to get some ice in it, and it's got a twist, so it's very lively in your mouth. I love bitters, so for me, it's the perfect drink. Um, I also tend to like Susan Tonic. You know, everyone's familiar with the gin and tonic, which is becoming more popular in France. Um, it's become trendy because a lot of people are making gin now in France. I've learned gin is like printing. They say gin is like printing money. Because when you make something like cognac or whiskey, you have to let it sit in a barrel for a couple of years. Whereas gin, as soon as it comes out of the still, boom, you put it in the bottle and sell it. So there's a lot of gin now in France. And some of it's really, really good. So that's a new thing. So gin and tonic is a favorite. Again, you know, it's, I'm, I sort of brought it back into my repertoire because the French are sort of discovering it again. And, and is, you know, it made any, is it made all over France now? Or is it, you know, because most of these other, like Armagnac, Cognac are, re, you know, from a specific region and uh, Appalachian is, is gin everywhere? It is. Um, what's interesting is the first gin in France was made by a Cognac distiller. And because of all the rules, there's lots of rules in France. He was only allowed to use his stills to make Cognac and only during certain months of the year. So they were empty the rest of the year. And he said, well, why don't I make gin? Of course, he wasn't allowed to. And he spent a couple of, you know, he, he, he dealt with the bureaucracy and finally was allowed to make gin in the stills. So that's Citadel gin. And then, you know, everybody else started making gin. Now there's a distillery in Paris. Um, it took them, I think, five years to get the permits to open a still in Paris. Um, so there's gin is all over. There's ones made in the south of France in Provence that have like citrons in them and all that beautiful citrus fruit that you get down there. Um, and a friend of mine makes it in Burgundy. His is much more um, astringent, I should say, because he's really into the botanicals, like the roots and so forth and the berries. So gin is everywhere, which is good. 
can't have enough gin as far as I'm concerned. And so I'm thinking, though, if we're trying to evoke a summer in Paris vibe or south of France, I mean, a gin and tonic is quite, you know, to me, I think of it as a quintessential summer country club drink in America. Do the French drink it? Is there anything they add to it? Or you can have the same drink uh, I would have? They do the gin and tonic, but the French version is a Susan tonic, which is gentian liquor and tonic water, um, which is really becoming French. Um, you know, the, when the Suze replaces the gin, it has a lot more sharpness. It's more bitter. Um, it's more uh, it's more enjoyable to me. Um, and then there's always pastis. You know, people love pastis. I'm not a huge fan of anise liqueurs, but that's a really that's a really French drink. Um, it's kind of the drink that wiped out a lot of the aperitifs when French people got their vacations in 1930. They all went to the south and discovered pastis. Then they came home and didn't want to drink the local stuff. They wanted pastis. So, um, you know, pastis is sort of the national drink of France. Well, those are great examples. All right. Thank you for that. So after the break, David's going to share his Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show or share your ideas for future guests. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Okay, David, what's your Julia moment? Uh, well, the first time I met Julia Child, I was working at Chez Panisse, and I was in the pastry department, so I was in the back of the kitchen. And one of the great things about Chez Panisse is people always came in the kitchen to talk to us, whether it was Steve Martin, whether it was Bill Clinton, or whether it was James Beard or Richard Olney. We were always, these people came in, it was just spectacular. Um, and Julia Child was coming in for dinner. Um, and Alice Waters, the owner of the restaurant, was very excited and nervous at the same time because she wanted to make sure Julia Child had an amazing meal. And Julia Child walked into the kitchen. You know, she was very tall, sort of hunched over, sort of looking around. And everyone was kind of looking at her, you know. We had, you know, you, you, can't, you couldn't help but not look at her. And everyone was kind of stunned. And then she came over to me. And I just started talking to her like a person. I was like, hey, hey, Julia, how's it going? And so forth. And then, you know, she was very nice. We had a little chat about it. So she goes, what are you making there, dearie? And I'm like, oh, a nectarine tart. She goes, look at those nectarines. They're so orange. And I bet they're from a lovely, you know, I'm not going to try to in, try to imitate her voice. Um, but she was very nice. And then when she left, um, somebody came up to me, um, Alice's husband at the time. And she, he said, that's what she really wanted. She just wanted to be treated like a person. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like she didn't, she didn't like to be fussed over. Um, and the second time I met her, I was at a culinary conference and my book, it was my first book had come out and it had been nominated for the book award. So they put me at this table near the front of the auditorium. And at my table was, it was me, Julia Child, Graham Kerr and Claudia Rodin. And I'm sitting there like this guy who stood in the back of the kitchen and sliced nectarines all night, you know. You've so, arrived. Yeah. 
and these people, you know, the, the servers came over to her and they said, the kitchen made you this special dessert, Julia. And it was this really complicated chocolate sculpture. And she just looked at it, very gracious. It's not her thing. You know, she just wanted, you know, tarte au pommes. She didn't like people making a fuss over. She was so gracious um, and lovely. And it was just charming to be. And she said to me, she goes, can you find me Marion Cunningham? I really want to talk to her because she liked Marion because she was so down to earth. And I knew Marion pretty well, so I found her. Um, anyway, my book didn't win. And the next year, I was placed in the back of the auditorium with everybody else. <laughs> so I had my two Julia moments, um, and <laughs> those were them. Well, thank you very much for being here and sharing those memorable moments with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me to share them. It's really it's great to think about her because, you know, I often tell people, like, I exist I can do what I do because of people like her and Patricia Wells, who you know, I'd like to give Patricia Wells a nod to for bringing France to Americans. Um, you know, a lot of times people have said to me, well, shouldn't a Frenchie person be doing what you're doing? And I was like, well, a lot of Americans, you know, I can relate to Americans. I know, you know. So, and Julia Child made France relatable to Americans. And that was her brilliance. So chapeau, Julia. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Well, thanks everyone for listening. If you want to delve into David's Parisian world, it's David Leibovitz on Instagram and Twitter. And the blog lives on davidleibovitz.com. It's L-E-B-O-V-I-T-Z. The new book is Drinking French, the Iconic Cocktails, Aperitifs, and Cafe Traditions of France. And as David says, it's very connected to American traditions as well. They are intertwined. And it includes a whopping 160 recipes with charming photographs by Ed Anderson. It's out now from 10 Speed Press. You can ask or search for it at your favorite bookselling outlet. We have a packed summer of news and events coming up, so keep up to date. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram, at Julia Child JCF on Twitter, and I'm T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Downloads are available soon after wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.